Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Staff. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. We are all coming to you from Stats Worldwide Headquarters here in Boston. Thanks to the Bio Conference, the Read Out Loud crew is once again all together. It's Thursday, June 7th, and here's what's on the docket this week. After a painful and high-profile failure in Alzheimer's, Axivant Sciences is pivoting to gene therapy. We ask, is Wall Street ready to give Vivek Ramaswamy a second chance? Students, take your seats. Class is in session. Professor Feuerstein is here to give you a lesson on Biotech Math 101. You'll learn how to cut through all the jargon to parse through clinical trial results just announced at the big annual cancer meeting. There's a lot of excitement about cell and gene therapies, but what will it take for the reality to catch up with the promise? Nina Shelson, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist at Canaan Partners, joins us to opine on what's next for the field. And finally, we'll do another lightning round. We'll dish out hot takes about a bunch of CEOs. One just ousted, another just hired, and a third hitting the campaign trail. So guys, let's talk about the uh, hottest stock in biotech this week, Axivant Sciences, or maybe we should call it Re-Axivant Sciences? Axivant's share price has nearly tripled this week on the news of a company pivot. To understand why they're pivoting, it might be helpful to walk through the history from Damien, who's been covering this saga since 2015. So yeah, the story starts almost exactly three years ago when Axivant Sciences pulled off what was then a record biotech IPO on the promise that an old drug for Alzheimer's disease that had been abandoned by GlaxoSmithKline could be turned into a successful product. And that turned the company's founder, Vivek Ramaswamy, who was then 30 years old, into sort of a cause celebre in biotech. He landed on the cover of Forbes, and I believe the headline beneath him was Meet the Millennial Conjuring Drug Companies Out of Thin Air. But then, as things tend to do in this business, the plans went awry. Very much so. So in September of last year, we learned that maybe GlaxoSmithKline was right because that drug failed in a large clinical trial. Then there was another failure at the start of this year, and that led to Axivant cutting ties with that drug entirely and losing billions of dollars of market value. Which brings us back to this week, where essentially the company is relaunching itself as a gene therapy developer. Is that right, Damien? Exactly. So it's under new management. The last CEO quit and then deleted the company from his LinkedIn profile. The new CEO is remaking Axivant in the image of of gene therapy and of treatments for Parkinson's disease. So they bought the rights to a gene therapy that theoretically will treat Parkinson's by targeting basically the the genetic problems that lead to the advance of the disease. And has this been tested in humans yet? Sort of. It's a little bit complicated. There is a precursor, sort of a 1.0 version of what they bought, which had been tested in humans. This, they say, what they've licensed, is a 2.0 version that will be even better, and they plan to begin clinical trials later this year. The company's foundational strategy was basically repossessing drugs that other firms had already developed. This, on the other hand, with gene therapy, is not exactly a safe bet. Very much so. So I think, you know, the bull case and bear case kind of established themselves. The bull case for this is that a lot of people sort of raise an eyebrow at Axivant in years past because they were buying things that had already failed in the hands of other companies. And so it was seen as sort of a cutesy, almost risk arbitrage or cost arbitrage move. This time, they're buying into gene therapy, which is a much more newfangled approach to treating disease than just old pills. And furthermore, it's a novel idea. For the old, the old Alzheimer's drug that we were talking about, it was a molecule that was very similar to some molecules that existed across the industry. 
It'll be interesting to watch how they progress. And once they get this into, into human clinical trials, there's another company, Voyager Therapeutics, that's also developing a gene therapy for Parkinson's. Um, they're further along. I mean, they actually have human clinical data already. That's true. And I think, you know, beyond the legitimately important thing, which is whether the drug works, and, and if you have Parkinson's disease, obviously it's a very dire condition with very few options. What I think has always made the Aximent story fascinating to me is the sort of cult of personality around Vivek Ramaswamy, the founder, who remains the chairman of the company, but he's no longer the CEO, and he has a whole other slew of day jobs to keep him busy. But whenever there's news on Aximent, if you look to Twitter, you will find an incredible amount of vitriol for this man. Yeah, it was really interesting on uh, Wednesday when the news came out in the morning to look at Twitter or bio Twitter and watch sort of the hate tweets roll in about what uh, the new Axe event was doing. But then that was sort of contradicted by the, the reaction in the stock price, which as soon as the stock opened for trading in the morning, it just took off. I mean, it doubled on Wednesday, and as we sit here on Thursday, the stock is up another 40%. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that sort of dichotomy. So what was everyone on BioTwitter saying? What was the substance of their critique? I think a lot of it is just, pardon the phrase, but bad blood. You know, and again, it echoes the Theranos thing, where you've got this sort of high-profile, hypey company that sort of comes out of nowhere and fails spectacularly, and now, you know, they're trying to sort of re, you know, reposition themselves. But... You know, a lot of people just don't want to give them that benefit of the doubt. And so you're getting a lot of this kind of like hate tweeting, you know, or like hostility. When, you know, look, if you step back objectively and look at this, like, you know, it's a new company. And so now they may fail again and they may succeed. We don't know. It'll be depending on what the data looks like. But it is sort of a new company right now. And it's always been interesting to me to see how... Vivek is discussed similarly to how people discuss Elizabeth Holmes. And I think, you know, not to like regurgitate what we wrote, but the way that we phrase it in our story about this is that if you bet $100 on Axivant about nine months ago, you're holding seven bucks now. And that's bad. You lost money. However, Theranos actually, I mean, they've settled with the SEC without admitting guilt, but they're accused of committing massive fraud that put patients' lives at risk, at least allegedly. Axivant is accused of being wrong about an Alzheimer's drug. Yeah, and I think I said this on Twitter. Like, I, I know the guy, the consultant that, that Axivant used to sort of vet a lot of these new pipeline products that they were looking at, uh, including this gene therapy. And, you know, he's a diligent guy. Uh, I can't tell you who he is. He's a diligent guy. And he's also a realist. I think that, like, you know, I think you sort of need to step back here and say, you know, this is a different company right now. And yes, they've got this past that, you know, is kind of hard to get over. But I guess essentially people need to get over it and kind of move on. And then we'll just see what the company does. We'll, we'll see what Axivant 2.0 looks like. So when can we expect a first milestone from the revamped Axivant? So they plan to start that Parkinson's disease study later this year. They haven't said when there'll be data, but everybody figures it'll probably be early 2019. But then the most likely next milestone is Axivant's new CEO promised this is not the last deal that they'll do, and you can expect more this year. So the American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting just wrapped up on Tuesday. If you missed the news, you can read the stories about new developments in cancer drugs written by Adam and our stat colleague Sharon Begley. Most of the stories that Adam and Sharon wrote from ASCO describe the results of clinical trials of experimental medicines. That means they're populated with words and phrases like median overall survival, hazard ratios, or reductions in risk. Yeah, so the language used to describe the results of these clinical trials, and you know, it could be cancer, but also any other disease or condition, they can be pretty confusing. 
So we wanted to spend a few minutes on this podcast to explain these commonly used terms simply in a way that doesn't require an advanced degree in biostatistics to understand. And before we do that, we should make the blanket caveat if you are a biostatistician, you are probably about to endure a cringeworthy oversimplification of what you do for a living. Sorry. And if you're listening and you hear us get something really terribly wrong, please let us know. All right, so let's get started with what it means to demonstrate an improvement in overall survival. That sounds straightforward, but there are different ways to describe patients living longer. So here's a press release issued by Merck last Sunday at ASCO describing the results of a phase three trial in which the combination of Keytruda, which is Merck's blockbuster immunotherapy drug, and chemotherapy significantly improved the overall survival of certain lung cancer patients compared to chemo alone. So the press release reads, quote, Keytruda plus chemotherapy significantly improved overall survival, reducing the risk of death by 36% compared to chemotherapy alone, end quote. Then the press release says HR is equal to 0.064. Adam, what does HR mean? What is Merck talking about? So what Merck is conveying in that statement is a biostatistical calculation called a hazard ratio, along with the way it is commonly expressed for ordinary people who are not biostatisticians. So let's break that down. So the idea of risk reduction is pretty straightforward, right? A higher percentage is better. Uh, it would be amazing if a cancer drug like Keytruda, for instance, uh, could reduce the risk of death by 100%. But obviously, cancer is very tough, and that's not possible, at least today, right? So conversely, a drug that doesn't reduce the risk of death at all, let's say the risk reduction is zero, that's probably a drug that's not very effective. It's probably not even going to get approved. Got it. So in this case, in this type of lung cancer patient, the Keytruda chemo combination reduced the risk of death by 36% compared to patients treated with chemo alone. And that's pretty good for current cancer therapies. But it also shows you there is room for improvement. But also, I'm curious, how did Merck come up with or calculate that 36% number in terms of reduction of risk of death? Right, so this, that's where the next bit of gibberish comes in. The HR that Rebecca mentioned, that is shorthand for hazard ratio that was in the press release. In this case, the hazard ratio was 0.64. And what does that mean? So this is probably where the biostatisticians are gonna get really angry with me. But really simply, the hazard ratio is a statistical method of measuring the difference in an outcome between two treatments. So in this case, the outcome is survival. And the treatments being compared are Keytruda plus chemo versus chemotherapy alone. Now the hazard ratio gives us the statistical estimate of survival of lung cancer patients treated with Keytruda and chemo compared to the survival of patients treated with chemo alone over the course of the entire clinical trial. So the easiest starting place to understand what a hazard ratio really is, is if you think about a hazard ratio in a clinical trial when it's equal to one. So a hazard ratio of one means there's no difference at all between the two treatment arms. So if you're running a clinical trial of a cancer drug and trying to show that it improves survival over some other treatment or a placebo, a hazard ratio of one is a very bad news. That means that there's no difference at all in survival. So the smaller the hazard ratio, the better. Right. So an easy rule of thumb for anyone coming across hazard ratios in clinical trials is that the smaller the hazard ratio, that would equal a greater survival benefit for the drug being investigated. So let's go back to the Merck example that we're using here. The hazard ratio for the Keytruda chemo was 0.64. That's less than one, which means the patients treated with Keytruda and chemo are living longer than those with chemo alone. 
But how do you get from a hazard ratio of 0.64 to a 36% reduction in the risk of death? Very good question, Rebecca. So there are different ways of describing the same survival benefit. So to convert, you take the hazard ratio and you turn it into a percent. So in this case, 0.64 equals 64%. You then you subtract the 64% from 100%. That equals 36%. So in other words, a 36% reduction in the risk of death. There's also a third way that researchers describe survival in a clinical trial, right? That's where they tell you the median overall survival, and it's usually expressed in months. Right, exactly. So median overall survival is very easy to understand for most people, but it also can be a little bit confusing. So getting back to our Merck example from ASCO this weekend, in that press release that we were talking about, the median overall survival for the Keytruda chemo patients was 15.9 months. That compares to a median overall survival of 11.3 months for the patients who took chemotherapy alone. Okay, so the difference between those two numbers is 4.6 months. So this means that Keytruda plus chemo improves survival by 4.6 months compared to chemo by itself, right? Well, not exactly. So median overall survival was improved by 4.6 months in the trial, but the term median is really important here, right? Median means the middle or the midpoint. So in this Merck trial, 4.6 months is the time at which half of the patients are still alive and half have died. So median overall survival gives you a picture of a survival at a single time point during the trial. That's why it can be a little bit confusing because real patients may live longer or shorter than 4.6 months. For this reason, that's why I kind of, I generally prefer to describe overall survival in, cl in clinical trials using hazard ratios and reductions in risk instead of using median overall survival. One last question, Adam. Will there be a quiz? Nope, and here's why. Thanks, Alice Cooper. Everyone talks about the incredible potential of gene and cell therapies like CAR-T, a new way of treating cancer that involves re-engineering the body's immune cells. But these treatments have so far only succeeded in a small number of pretty rare diseases, and actually getting them to patients has proved to be expensive and time-consuming. Nina Shelson, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist from Canaan Partners, is betting on the promise of these technologies. She's leading Canaan's investments in two startups in the field, Vinetti and Pact. But she's also clear-eyed about the obstacles holding the field back. She joined us this week for a conversation about the potential and the pitfalls of this rising space. Thank you for joining us, Nina. Glad to be here. So I wanted to start with cell and gene therapy. Over the past year, we've seen FDA approvals for gene therapy and a CAR-T cancer therapy, but FDA approval isn't the finish line for new treatments. And so I'm curious, what, what do you think are the barriers that are keeping these new technologies from reaching more patients? Well, first off, I think the barriers are just the limited indications for which they've been approved. The pediatric ALL, and now we're coming with adult B-cell, and those are relatively small patient populations. The biggest barriers are, and, and part of our investment thesis in um, cell and gene therapy for cancer, is that these are overwhelmingly complex processes to bring to market. Uh, highly personalized and incredible logistical coordination needs to happen with a patient at the clinical center where they're prescribed and uh, their blood is collected for engineering. And then the courier process, the manufacturing process, which is a many weeks to months long process, the return of the cells to those patients. And this has to be done right patient, their own cells returned to them with exquisite quality control. 
And so the early rollouts are being done in a very, very deliberate and cautious way. You mentioned one of those key challenges in the field, that is the immense complexity of manufacturing, storing, and transporting these therapies. What infrastructure do you think we need to expand that reach? In some ways, I think we need a wholesale re-engineering of information systems in medicine, period. But specific to uh, cell therapy for cancer, we've made an investment in a company called Venetti that is really looking to solve for the fact that we need data inputs from every node of the way into a master data management platform that allows us to have real-time reporting and analytics showing that those cells are being manipulated and engineered in the right way and returned to the right uh, the right folks. And we have so many disparate different input systems from laboratory to clinical EHR to the courier systems to the manufacturing instrumentation in that process. And all of that has to be fed into a global view. And Venetti is really taking the lead on that, leveraging a lot of experience learned, creating a, you know, a complex sort of record of truth in other industries and bringing that to healthcare. I'm curious, you mentioned sort of the, the infrastructure challenge and the logistical challenge, but the other thing is you mentioned the CAR-T therapies we have right now are approved as sort of last lines of therapy for relatively rare cancers. And I'm curious, what do you think the horizon is in terms of being able to demonstrate the utility of those kind of therapies for more common diseases or more widespread forms of, of cancer? I mean, I think that's incredibly important to democratizing these therapies for, for all cancer patients and not those very few with the particular tumor types that express the particular tumor antigen in that CAR-T therapy that also potentially live in proximity to a leading center of excellence in cancer that is able to adopt and, and deliver these therapies. So I think we need scientific breakthroughs. Uh, in order to find different types of targets in the tumors. I'm very interested in not what CAR-T has done, which is tumor-specific uh, antigens that are also to some extent expressed on, on healthy cells, to cancer-only epitopes or neoepitopes uh, and engineering those into cells or potentially vaccines. Um, and very interested in seeing that apply to solid tumors where I think you need a multiplicity of targets in order to achieve, uh, achieve response. I also think you need um, a T-cell approach. I think you need the infiltration into the tumor and sort of a shock and awe approach where you're engineering cells to be young, fresh, really antigenic, and have tools to be able to confirm that those predicted targets actually do elicit a response in the patient's uh, own immune system before you introduce those, those cells. And lastly, I think we need lower cost and faster manufacturing in order for this to be more available and even distributed manufacturing instead of these multi-hundred million dollar centralized uh, manufacturing operations that limit the, the use to, to those centers that can access those. You, of course, hear lots of pitches from companies that say they're working on the next big thing for cell and gene therapy. Obviously, not everything is going to work, and in fact, most things are not going to work. As an investor, how do you discern promising ideas from those with sketchy odds of success? Well, part of it is data and seeing what has been scientifically reduced to practice, perhaps not yet clinical proof, uh, but have a really robust reduction to practice in the laboratory. I think this is a game that's highly interdisciplinary and is really for the field of experts. So we look very much at the composition of the team. And so we'd be irresponsible if we brought a venture capitalist in and didn't ask about like the state of the biotech market as a whole. As we stand, valuations are up from where they were a couple years ago when there was a dip. And I know there are some people who are worried that they might have outpaced reality a bit and that a correction might be in the cards for biotech. And I was curious, 
What do you think? Like, have things gotten a little bit frothy out there? It's hard not to say that it's gotten frothy. There's just an, a tremendous, unprecedented amount of capital in the system, and that's coming from private equity and venture capital in the U.S., the public markets, really well-capitalized pharmaceutical and large biotech companies that are capitalizing things through business development and their own strategic investing. And then we have the entrance of Chinese capital on a rate that we or a scale that we just had, had never anticipated. And so whenever there is such an abundance or glut of capital, I think there is some concern about overinvestment and a, a reasonable expectation of some correction. I would say, however, though, just as though we're in an unprecedented time of money in the system, we're also in an unbelievable scientific revolution and the clinical insights are profound. So I think there's the best match between science and technology and money that we've had in my 20-year career in the industry. Thank you for coming on the show, Nina. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Hey, Damien, Rebecca, guess what time it is? What time is it? It's lightning round time! So there's a bit of a theme this week, and it is CEOs, which of course is everybody's favorite class of professional in American capitalism. Let's start with that somewhat confusing Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, Amazon thing from earlier this year. The initiative, if you recall, was supposed to solve healthcare using innovative, cost-cutting ideas. And this week, one of the CEOs behind it uh, Warren Buffett told CNBC that they've picked a CEO to lead the venture and they'll reveal who it is within two weeks. So, you know, cue all the jokes on Twitter about how everything is a reality TV show right now. I look forward to the televised unveiling. Right. Any speculation on who this new CEO could be? So caveat that this is totally baseless speculation, but I saw the name thrown out on Twitter, Toby Cosgrove, the departing CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. It would be ironic if they picked someone who is the epitome of the entrenched medical establishment to completely revolutionize. Well, this is a lightning round, so totally baseless speculation is what we're after. Absolutely. I think it'll be Elizabeth Holmes. All right, so next up, let's talk about the rise and fall of Jonathan Bush. He's the CEO of medical software company Athena Health. He's also the nephew of one president and the cousin of another. So it wasn't so long ago that Bush was a media and Wall Street darling. Then the past week happened. So it all started when the Daily Mail in the UK reported that Jonathan had assaulted his former wife 14 years ago, and then sort of came to a head earlier this week when Bloomberg reported the existence of a video clip. To cut it short, he doesn't represent himself terribly well. He says, quote, he wants to jump down on, end quote, one of his female employees, quote, and do inappropriate things, end quote. By Wednesday, the company had announced that Bush would be stepping down. So it's not totally clear why the story came up now, but it's worth noting that in recent months, Athena Health has been fighting a takeover by hedge fund Elliott Management. Yeah, and I think the fact that all of this stuff is coming out now at the same time that this hedge fund is trying to take over Athena Health, like, I'm not trying to condone what Jonathan did, certainly, but like, I think it goes to show you that Wall Street is, uh, can be an ugly place. I think it also raises the question of how much of the, more of this we're going to see, um, because I think there are a lot of skeletons in the closet that, uh, you know, in this kind of Me Too era could spell the downfall of other executives. Well, that's the kind of interesting like externality of this is that I don't think anybody has causally linked the emergence of this story, especially the 14 years ago thing from, from Jonathan's ex-wife, with the takeover challenge by uh, the hedge fund that you mentioned. But everybody is kind of just assuming that the two things are related. And so 
it'll be interesting if this does continue, Rebecca, as you mentioned, to watch people kind of contend with what does one make of truthful and you know, deserving of public light accusations if they are brought to light in order to make money for somebody. Next up, let's talk about Bob Hugan. He's a Celgene executive turned New Jersey Senate candidate. And as was no surprise, he won his Republican primary on Tuesday. Tonight's victory is a major step forward for our campaign, but it's also a major step forward for all of the people of New Jersey. So now the real campaign starts. Uh, Bob will face off against another Bob, Bob Menendez. He's the Democrat uh, in the November election. I'm really looking forward to this campaign just because, like, if you've followed biotech, you know, Celgene gets the sort of eminent position at JP Morgan every year. So I've seen Bob Hugan just like carried on a crested wave of people who just want to hear his every word. And he was sort of biotech royalty. I really want to see the footage of him on a campaign bus going to like a Sunday morning meeting of the Republican women's organization of whatever township, New Jersey, and just see a guy who once commanded such attention have to just like press the flesh and kiss babies. And we've mentioned this before, the attack ads will be epic. And finally, we want to leave you with something really meaningful. Yeah, so Michael Becker uh, is a longtime biotech executive who is now himself a patient with cancer. He's been raising awareness about HPV. That's the virus that caused his head and neck cancer. And, you know, he's been really trying to promote this idea that kids and young adults need to get vaccinated to avoid it. Forbes reporter Matt Herper visited Becker's home and his doctor's office in a really moving video that was published this week, including talking about his decision to do what he anticipates will be his final round of chemotherapy and the impact that it's all having on his family. One thing that really got me in watching the video was Michael's regret that he had never brought a drug to market during his career. But as Jeffrey Gardner, CEO of Argentum Pharma, has said on Twitter, Michael has a different legacy and one that's incredibly powerful. And that's his, his book, his blog, his Twitter feed, all that advocacy is in a lot of ways, you know, sort of a, a powerful drug of its own. It's a way that perhaps has saved a number of lives. So that's a pretty incredible legacy. For all of us here at Read Out Loud, Michael, we are rooting for you. And that does it for this week's episode of The Read Out Loud. We want to thank Jeff Del Vicio, Hyacinth Empanado, and Matthew Orr for producing this week's episode. Jeff Del Vicio is also our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a standing reminder that we cherish your feedback and we'd love to hear from you. We'd like to hear ideas for future episodes, thoughts on how we're doing this, ideas for guests we might feature, and you can email us at readoutloud at statnews.com. Until next week.